Hey church, we're so glad that you're joining us for the launch of our new series, Love Works. Now, today we are going to be speaking about something that we all love to love, a person that we all love to love, and that is ourselves. The, the episode one of our series is Loving Yourself. Now, you may, may be asking, why is the series called Love Works? Well, what we want to communicate over the next several weeks is that love is not just sentimentality. Love takes work, takes hard work. You know that because the people that you love and that love you in return, it's taken work to get there. And as we go through God's word, and as we see in scripture who God is, it's made very clear to us that God is love. We actually read in scripture that it says very clearly, God is love. And God's love took work. We'll see that today. You'll see that through the rest of this series, that God's love took work on your behalf, and he's continually working for your good on your behalf. Love works. And so I'm excited about this series. I think it is going to be great for the life of our church. I know it's going to be great for me personally as well to see what love looks like in all of its very different, various forms and in the different relationships that we have. And so today, we're looking at loving yourself. How does love work in regards to the self? Now, have you ever had something happen where you were doing something a certain way only to find out later that there's a better way to do it? This happens all the time, right? Where you're doing something one way because you were taught that way or that's how you saw somebody else do it only to find out later there's a better way to do that thing. That happened to me with cutting mangoes. I love mangoes. I know how to cut around and get the seed out, the pit. But it was always difficult to figure out, how do you cut this mango and eat it? And it was, it was a, a, a dirty job until I saw somebody cut the little slits and you make the checkerboard and then you flip the mango and you can just eat the little bite-sized pieces. Revolutionary. For me also, I love uh, cold brew coffee, especially when it's hot outside in the summer. And I like raw sugar. I'm not a big fan of the white sugar. I like raw sugar. And I, for the longest time, would mix, you know, one packet of raw sugar in a cold brew coffee. And I just kind of always did it, even though it never really worked, because you can't mix cold coffee and sugar doesn't mix very well. So the very last sips of the coffee was like out of control sugar where you could barely open your eyes. It was so sweet. Until I realized that Starbucks and Passion and other coffee shops here in Miami, they actually have simple syrup, but it's raw sugar. Raw, simple syrup. Changed my life. Now I give a little splash of that. The whole coffee is perfect. I'm actually making it at home now. There's a better way to do it. I recently watched a YouTube video that had 50 people on how to cut an avocado. And some of these people, they knew what they were doing. They knew how to cut around and open it up and you scoop it out. But some of these people, they had no idea how to cut an avocado. I mean, they're trying to slice it. Hilarious, because they had no idea how to do it the right way. And I thought I'd been cutting an avocado the right way. I'm born and raised in South Florida. I've been around avocado my whole life. But I realized when I watched the video, there's a better way. See, normally, if you're like me, you cut around and you open up the avocado, maybe use a spoon or you peel the skin back if it's really ripe, and then you have just the one side of the avocado, and you take your knife, and if you're putting it in a salad or something, or you want it on toast, you'll slice it. 
you know, and then it, it's perfect, ready to eat. But I saw a chef on this YouTube video who cut it up, opened it up, and then he took the knife. Better way, helping you at home, practical sermon. Sliced the little slits while it's still in the shell. So when you scoop it out, it's already cut perfectly. Game changer. Game changer. You're welcome. You're welcome. There's a better way to do it. It happens all the time for us, right? We always realize that in time there's a better way to do something that we thought we were doing the right way only to find out there's a better way. And all of us here are accustomed to loving ourselves. In some way, shape, or form, it's how we've been taught. Maybe some of us struggle to love ourselves. Some of us love ourselves too much. Whatever it may be. And culture and friends and family and books we've read and YouTube videos we watch or articles we come across tell us how to love ourselves. In fact, that's a very accepted proclamation in our culture that you are to love yourself. That you are to love yourself. And that's a good proclamation. There's a lot of good things about that statement to love yourself. Because it enables you to to love the body you've been given, to love the personality you've been given, to love the mind you've been given. But if you just kind of stop there and just say love yourself, there are also some negatives that come along with that, some dangers. If you don't kind of tease out that idea of what does that actually look like? How does that actually work and function? Some of the dangers, if you just kind of have this general moving target of loving yourself, is that there are actually aspects of our lives, your life and my life, that we should not love, that we should desire to see growth, that we should welcome conviction, that we should welcome challenge, that we should not just holistically love ourselves in every aspect because actually part of our Christian faith and part of our life is to grow and become the person that God has created us to be to grow to become more like Christ. So though we are to love ourselves and who God has made us to be, it's not just a general blanket statement. You see, culture makes that proclamation, which is a good proclamation to love yourself, but it's this general moving target. And the prescription for that proclamation is think positive thoughts about yourself, say no to things that don't fit within the vision for your life, don't surround yourself with toxic people, practice mindfulness and meditation. There's other kind of prescriptions that may be helpful in the moment to help you think positively and to kind of refresh your spirit. But they are unreliable prescriptions. Just think positively and don't have toxic people in your life. And just be mindful and meditate. See, Culture makes the proclamation to love yourself, but it provides an unreliable prescription. In fact, it's not a prescription at all. It's a placebo. It's a placebo. So we need a reliable prescription to that proclamation that we are to love ourselves because we know that it's actually biblically supported. Jesus says this. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is asked what the greatest commandments are. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now see, there's a lot in that statement. Oftentimes we just think about the love your neighbor part of it. That we are to love other people. And Jesus teases that out in his gospels in different ways where he says you're to love your enemies too. 
But see, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. To the degree that you love yourself is the degree that you can love other people. If you're not loving yourself well, if you're not loving yourself in the right way, if the prescription for loving yourself is off base, you will be ineffective in loving other people. You will struggle to love them well in the way that you've been called to. You may be able to be nice to people and generous at times and say nice things and give a positive response to people, especially when they do something that is pleasing to you, but that's not love. See, when Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself, there's a very clear understanding of what love is. Love works. It's not just sentimentality. The Bible says that love is kindness and patience and gentleness and compassion sacrifice, selflessness, forgiveness. Love works. takes hard work. It's not just sentimentality. So we have to have a reliable prescription to the proclamation to love ourselves because it's not only important that we love ourselves, but to the degree that we're able to love ourselves is to the degree that we can actually effectively love other people according to God's definition of love. And so what is love? You see, love is moving toward another, moving toward another before they move towards you, not because of it. Love is moving towards another before they do anything, not because they did something. It's not responding. It's first moving toward another. We see that in our passage tonight. We're in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. The Apostle Paul is speaking about the love of God. Here's what he says in verse 31 through 33. He says in verse 31, What, can, what then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I love verse 31. I'm sure you love that verse as well. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, why do we know that God is for us? How can we make that claim? How can we stand on that truth? How can we hold on to that hope that if God is for us, who can be against us? Because of the next verse. It's because of God's love that moved toward us before we ever moved towards him. We actually did nothing and God moved towards us in love. He worked on our behalf so we could respond to his love and his grace. So we know that God is for us because verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also, not also with him graciously give us all things? So we know that God is for us because he loves us. And we know God loves us because he moved towards us before we did anything. Not because of us. Not because we did anything to earn or deserve his love. Yet he proved it to us by coming towards us through the sacrifice of his son that we just celebrated this past weekend, Good Friday and Resurrection Easter Sunday. That is the picture of God's love that work, took hard work on our, for our behalf, 
for our good. Move towards us. And then the Apostle Paul doubles down in verse 33. He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's people, God's chosen? It is God who justifies. It is God who makes right. Who makes us right with God? God. He's the one that moves towards us. Not because we move towards Him. He justifies. He makes us right because He loves us. He has revealed His love to us in the person of Christ and proved it. And so that is why we can say with confidence, God is for us. Who can be against us? Because He showed us love. Real, true love. So therefore, we can stand confident that we are accepted by God, that we are loved by God, that He is for us. You see, there's this interesting tension between the deep desire that every single one of us has to be loved and accepted and self-sufficiency. There's a tension here. Every single human being in the deepest part of their soul desires to be loved and accepted. But there's a tension with also being self-sufficient. They kind of pull against each other. And the way to kind of see this is if you actually actually go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, where we read about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve who are enjoying a perfect relationship with one another and a perfect relationship with God. They are fully known by God. They are fully loved by God. They are in perfect relationship with each other. They love each other. There is no sin. There is no separation. There is no guilt. There is no shame. No awkwardness. They are living in the garden and God is in their midst. And then they rebel against God. They sin against God. And you notice what happens when they sin against God. Two things. They immediately hide from God. They are fearful of God now. That relationship has been altered. There is now an awkwardness before God. There is shame before God because they have sinned and disobeyed and they are aware that they're naked. And their nakedness brings about shame. So they hide from God and they cover up themselves in front of each other. There's nobody else around. but They cover up. How interesting is that? They have been enjoying a perfect relationship with one another and with God. They have been living in the garden naked with no shame. And once sin enters, because of their action, they are aware of their bodies and they feel shame. And they have, they have the desire to cover up in front of each other and to hide from God. Isn't it interesting that nakedness makes us uncomfortable? That it makes us feel shame? There's a, there's a discomfort. In fact, there's a, a very common reoccurring dream that most people have had at one time in their life, and that is that they are dreaming that they are naked in front of a crowd and there's no clothes anywhere. Terrified, running, panic, trying to find clothes. Because nakedness and shame have this connection. Why is that? Because you see, nakedness is not only 
the feeling of being literally exposed before somebody else, but also figuratively exposed. We feel like people will not accept who we are. We are cognizant of our bodies and our flaws, and we feel like we will not be accepted, that we will not be loved. And so the tendency and and the response that we have is to hide and to cover up. So we cover up our bodies. In fact, many feel the urge to alter their bodies so that they might feel accepted. See, we do this not only with our bodies. We don't only cover up our bodies or alter our bodies or feel insecure about our bodies out of a fear of not being accepted by other people and loved by other people, but we do it with other aspects of our life too. Any place in your life where you feel insecure, that you have not met some standard, you will have a tendency to cover up and to hide. See, you may cover up some of the struggles that you're having in your professional career. And your response is to overinflate and to puff up how things are going. Oh, let me tell you about this opportunity that I got coming up. I, have, I mean, the upward trajectory of my career is really exciting. I'm in a great place. I can't wait to see what's going to happen. I'm crushing my goals. When in reality, you don't feel like that at all. Actually, things are not going very well, but you don't want anyone to know. So you kind of share things and cover things up in a different way so that you might be accepted by other people. Because if they really knew what kind of judgment, what kind of rejection would they have? We do this with relationships, right? Romantic relationships with a spouse, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You do this with your relationships within your family, with friendships. The conversation comes up where you have to talk about it if there's tension, if there's issues, if there's hostility. You don't want people to see that. You feel shame about that. That gets exposed, and so you cover it up, feeling insecure. Oh, no, 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 everything's going great. We're feeling really connected. We're having a really great time together. You know, we're processing through some things, but it's really, really good. It's really healthy. You don't want to let people see. You may do that with your kids. You don't want people to think that you are maybe not the mother or the father that you try to portray or that there are issues and so for some reason the, the struggles and the issues that your kids have you think are going to reflect upon you. And so you cover it up and you hide it and you try to make it look something different. Or you, you puff it up and, oh, no, they're doing great. Here's all this thing. So that it will reflect positively on you. You don't want to feel any shame. Maybe if you're single, Oh no, I'm embracing singleness. I'm taking charge of my life right now. I'm really excited, trying to make the most of it when in reality you're full of fear. You don't want someone to see that. There's shame there. You can do that in your faith too. No, my faith is going well. It feels really positive, you know. Happy to be back, you know, worshiping at church. I'm connecting with people online. I just, I'm just really, I'm growing in my faith. I'm reading the word. In fact, actually the pandemic has helped my faith. I'm home more, I'm reading the Bible, I'm praying with people, I'm calling people. Some of those things may be true, but in reality, you may feel disconnected in your faith. You may have not picked up your Bible in three weeks. You may have some doubts swirling in your head. You feel disconnected. But you don't want to reveal that because there's shame. You may not be accepted. You may feel judged. 
See, we hide and cover up so many different things. We hide and we cover up so many different things. Why? Because deep down, every single one of us has a desire to be loved. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. But because we have insecurities and we feel shame, it leads us not to be authentic with people, but to rather be self-sufficient. Okay, I've got to take control of my life. I've got to take control of my image. I've got to kind of make things look a certain way because I want people to accept me and I want people to love me and I can't let them see my shame. I can't let them see the brokenness in me. I can't let them see the flaws and the struggles that I have and the people around me have because then that may, I may not feel loved. So we have that tension between the desire to feel loved and what we believe is the need to be self-sufficient protect ourselves. But see, listen, if that is the route and the road that you're walking, you will not feel loved that way. You will not feel loved that way by hiding and covering up. Because to be loved requires being known. Being loved requires being known. You have to be known. So you know that if you are in a relationship with somebody that you love, a spouse, a child, family member, a friend. And the reason that there's that deep love is because you know them. And what has happened in that relationship is that you have not arrived at this deep love because you've just both decided to be strong and to grit your teeth and to, to make the decision to love each other. Here is why you love each other. Whether it's a spouse or a kid or a friend or a family member, whoever it may be, you love each other and you have deep love because you have forgiven each other. You have to be known to be loved and you have to forgive. Love requires forgiveness. Because when you know somebody, you're going to have to forgive them. And they're going to have to forgive you if you open up your life to them to find love. You cannot love yourself then if you don't forgive yourself. Do you hear that? You cannot love yourself if you don't forgive yourself because love requires forgiveness. You have to stop condemning yourself. You have to stop covering up the shame in your life and hiding it from maybe from God in your prayer life and from everybody else. You have to stop judging yourself. You have to forgive yourself. Loving yourself requires forgiving yourself. In fact, I, I believe that this is one of the reasons why Jesus tells us that we are to pray daily prayers of confession. So we just went through the series on the prayer. Daily, we're to pray for God to forgive us of our sins. Why? Because when you confess your sin daily to God, you're not only reminded of who you are, it actually heals you from the need to hide and to cover up. Because you're saying, hey, here's who I am, God. You know it. I'm actually bringing that to mind. 
I'm recognizing myself for who I am, a sinner, broken, flawed. It heals you from the need to cover up and hide. And it reminds you that not only are you a sinner, but that you're forgiven. You're a sinner and you're forgiven. And that heals you. You see, to love yourself, you must forgive yourself. And you must know yourself. So I said love requires two things. It requires being known and it requires forgiveness. You must forgive yourself and you must know yourself. Now here's a question. Do you know yourself? Do you really know yourself? Because I believe that sometimes we can become so self-sufficient and we can become, it's so easy for us to justify our behavior. We get so comfortable with hiding and covering up all types of shame and all types of struggles and all types of temptation and all types of problems that we begin to lose sight of who we really are. We don't really know ourselves. There's a a statement that we say all the time in the church, and it's this, Jesus has saved me from my sins. Jesus has saved me from my sins. Now, oftentimes when you make this statement or somebody says this, what accompanies this statement, if you pry, is a list of sins in the past that God has saved you from, he's forgiven you of. So you may say that statement or you may hear that and you may begin to think of all the sins, the individual evident sins in your past that have been forgiven. The lies, the lust, the greed, the selfishness, the dysfunctional relationships, the addiction, the anger, whatever it may be. Jesus has saved me from my sins. Those individual evident sins that I can recall and I can think of and I know there's other sins I can't think of too and he's forgiven me of those individual sins. So it's interesting. We say that. Jesus has forgiven me of my sins. But then we also say things like this in the church. Maybe you have. I can't believe that someone like that would do something like this. How could they do that? How could they fall into that temptation? How could they commit that sin? You see what happens there. We say Jesus saved me from my sins and we think about a long list of individual sins that God has saved us each individually from and then we look at other people who have committed sins that we have not committed and so we stand up on moral high ground and we say, up here, I've never committed those sins. God has not had to forgive me of those sins and so you kind of look down with judgment and it only feeds that fear that we have that we're going to be rejected by people. They really know who we are. So we feel like we need to hide, we need to cover up because everybody's kind of trying to get on their soapbox and they're a different kind of moral high ground over another person. They reject people, we distance people. It happens in the church. The church has actually tried to uh, combat this with a slogan that maybe you've heard before and it goes like this. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Maybe you've heard that before. Love the sinner, hate the sin. But what is that? That's another posturing. It's another separation of us versus them. Okay, they committed something. I can't imagine. I I would never do that. I mean, I don't know how or why they fell into that or whatever, but I got to love the sinner as if you're not one. But I hate the sin. 
There's this level to it. And it stems back from that idea that Jesus has saved us from these long lists of evident individual sins. But I don't like that statement. I don't like the statement that Jesus has saved me from my sins. I like this. Jesus has saved me from myself. Because that's actually what it is. Jesus has saved you from yourself. Now listen. What that means is that he has saved you from your nature. Your sinful nature that is capable of committing all of those individual sins and many more in the future. He has saved your sinful nature. See, when you are forgiven by God in Christ, you are not forgiven of just these individual sins that accumulate over time. No, you are forgiven. Your nature is forgiven. Christ forgives you. Jesus has saved me from myself. All the things that I have done, that I will do, and that I might possibly do in the future that I don't know. He has saved me from myself. And it is so important to understand this. That he has saved your nature. That he has even, in fact, replaced your nature. Scripture says that the old self is gone and the new self has come. You are a new creation. A new person. It is vital to see this because here you see God's love made clear. See, God hates sin. Very clear in the Bible. God hates sin. He takes sin so seriously that he promises that his wrath will be poured out upon sin. And yet God loves. And he loves us so much that he moved towards us before we did anything, not because of anything we've done, but because he loved us, he moved towards us and provided us a way to forgiveness, which is through faith in Christ. In his death, where the wrath of God was poured out on Christ because of our sin, we are forgiven. See, the only one that can actually say, love the sinner, hate the sin, is God. Because he is the only one on another level. He is the only one that is on the moral high ground. I can say, I love the sinner. I hate the sin, but I love the sinner. And I hate the sin, and that's why Jesus died for that sin. So that when they are forgiven, their nature is forgiven. That when you are forgiven, your nature is forgiven. You have actually received the righteousness of Christ. You are a new creation. This is God's love towards you. He loves you. But here's what we struggle with. As we struggle with thinking about how loving ourselves. We struggle with forgiving ourselves. We struggle with really going deep and knowing ourselves. Because we believe that God's love is not fully complete and perfect. Right now. One day it will be, maybe. But right now, we struggle with believing that God's love is perfect and complete for you because we love people with an ever-increasing love we love our friends and our spouse and our there's an ever-increasing love as there's reciprocal love and more connection over time the love grows deeper and deeper but God loves you perfectly now he loves you completely now not more in the future or less in the past in Christ he loves you completely And he knows you. He knows all your sin, all your brokenness, everything you try to hide and cover, he knows you. 
And yet He loves you. And He forgives you. And He doesn't condemn you. Look at verse 34 and 35 says, Romans chapter 8. It says this, Who is to condemn? Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The Apostle Paul is saying, do you know how profound God's love is for you? You are not condemned. Who condemns you? And what's his argument? Why are you not condemned? Because Christ was condemned for you on the cross. You're not condemned by God. Through faith in Christ, who died for you, who was condemned for you on the cross, was buried and raised from the grave, you are not condemned. In fact, he says, you can be so sure of his love that nothing will separate you from God's love. There is nothing you can do now or in the future that will separate you from God's love. There is no mortal sin that will separate you from God's love. You are loved completely right now through faith in Christ. Right now. And I love what the Apostle Paul says in verse 34. He says, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. He's intervening for you at the right hand of the Father. Now here's what that means. It does not mean that every time that you sin, Jesus is there next to God the Father. Like, hey, 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 no, don't, 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 don't pour your wrath out on him for that one. I know it's pretty bad. Don't pour it out. I died for that one too. Every time you sin, oh, that one too. Oh, that one too. No. He's interceding for who you are because your nature is always, is already changed. You've already been forgiven for who you are. He's interceding for you, for who you were in the past, who you are now, who you are in the future. Not, not as the sins accumulate. No, your sins have been wiped clean. You have been forgiven. Completely forgiven and loved. Because God knows you. He knows you completely right now. I love the passage in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. It says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. See, one day we will see fully, clearly, face to face, when we come before our God who is love, who has worked on our behalf, who loves you completely now in Christ. But you are known completely right now. We don't know God completely or fully. We see in a mirror dimly lit, the Apostle Paul says. But God knows you. He knows all your sin, all your shame. He knows everything that you wanted to do that you didn't do. He knows the things that you should have done that you didn't do. He knows everything. You cannot hide from him. You cannot cover up from him. He fully knows you. And he loves you. And he forgives you. In fact, your nature has changed. You're a new creation. He sees the righteousness of Christ on your life, not your previous life, not your old self, not your unrighteousness. That's been wiped clean. 
You see, the, the practice of rediscovering yourself as a sinner and being okay with who you are, your shame, your guilt, your brokenness, understanding the reality of your own depravity, your own sin, rediscovering that, even in the daily practice of confession and prayer, that is the prescription to loving yourself. Because as you rediscover yourself as a sinner, you're reminded that you are a son or daughter of the God who loves you, forgiven in Christ completely. And what does that tell you? It tells you something very clear. If God loves you, you should love yourself. If God forgives you, you should forgive yourself. If God doesn't condemn you, you shouldn't condemn yourself. If God tells you not to hide and cover up your sin before him, you should not hide and cover up your sin before others. This is the prescription to loving yourself that is actually reliable and not a placebo. The, the proclamation is right, love yourself, but the prescription is very important that we get it right. The prescription is to rediscover the reality that we are sinners and be reminded that we are forgiven completely in Christ. A new creation, our nature. Jesus has saved me from myself. I'm loved. That's how you love yourself. You cling to how the Apostle Paul closes this section in verse 37 through 39. Listen to this. This is true of you through faith in Christ. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Why are you more than a conqueror? Through Him who loved you. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to do what? Will be able to separate you from the love in Christ Jesus, the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Nothing. That is how you love yourself because you know you are fully and completely loved by God. He knows you and he forgives you. It's okay to discover who you are. Not to be okay with it because God does want to grow you, but to say, God, I'm a sinner and you love me. I'm going to discover the practice of loving myself and not condemning myself and not hiding and not covering up, but rejoicing in your love and walking with you as you make me more like Christ, as you continue to conform me into that new creation, because I know nothing will separate me from your love. Thank you for that. That is how you love yourself. And I want to just kind of close now. It's heavy on my heart for any of you that have not come before God in that way. Maybe you've come to God out of tradition or there's been religious motivations or you felt like you had to do something for God to love you. That God would love you because you did something. The good news is that in Christ, He died for all of your sin, for your nature that you are not condemned through faith in Christ's death and his resurrection, 
that your shame and your guilt is gone. You're fully and completely loved in Him. And I want to invite you to pray. To pray at home, wherever you may be, and just to come before God and to surrender your life to Him, knowing that you're loved. And then I want to also invite you to please let us know. Fill out a connect card that's posted in the comment section. Let somebody you know maybe at the church in a small group or a campus pastor know that you made this decision so we can walk with you. As we are all sinners in the same boat, loved by God in Christ. So if that's you, if God is speaking to you in that way, will you pray with me as we close our time together? Pray these words with me. God, I'm a sinner. I won't hide it. I won't try to cover it up. I'm broken. But I surrender my life to you. I believe, Jesus, that you died for my sin, for my nature, that you were condemned for me so that my shame might be done away with. And I believe that you rose victorious over death. Would you impress upon me your love now, that I'm completely loved, forgiven. May I begin to experience the new creation that you form in me right now, and with your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.